A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Here they come. Star Wars. Coming in too fast. An adventure unlike anything on your planet. It's an epic of heroes and villains and aliens from a thousand worlds. Star Wars rated PG. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? But this is a big episode because we are tackling, I think, arguably the most important movie we have ever tackled thus far. No offense to any of the uh, previous directors we've encountered, but uh, Star Wars has shown that it can live through through the decades. Your movies haven't yet. With me, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Joshua Page. Joshua Page. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. A long time. Yes, thank you. Since last week. Yes, thank you, Stephen. It's been a week, I think. Uh, We are still here. And yes, we are covering the reason that we did an entire show (laughs) on this topic. uh, The original Star Wars. Yes. Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. We have finally made it. It is A New Hope indeed. Or as it originally came out, simply... Star Wars. Uh, there is oh, a God. lot to cover, as you would imagine. I tried to truncate uh, as many uh, notes as I possibly could because we all know <laughs> how many books and things have been written about the making of this movie. So let's just dive so right let's in. Just jump right in. All let's right. Just jump right in. <laughs> so let's talk about the genesis, the geniasis. Geonosis. The geonosis, exactly. So the genesis of it was actually when it, it, it was brought about when George Lucas was a child and Spielberg has these same memories, which is why they collaborated so well on Raiders of the Lost Ark. But they had images of Westerns, Flash Gordon, like Dick Tracy, all these like comic serial movies and TV shows that came out when they were kids. They loved that camp, that uh, camp is probably the best word that some of these had. And on top of that, George Lucas for years, years had been reading uh, a lot of uh, religious texts, not just Christianity or the Torah or you know the Quran, but he went back further and read Greek mythology, Roman mythology, ancient uh, Chinese mythology, studying up on the samurai. And he kind of like took that and blended it with Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, which for anyone who doesn't know, Joseph Campbell created the what we know today as the Hero's Journey, which is how most movies operate. It's uh, um, it's, it's the story structure in which a lot of movies operate. It's and it's funny that you talk about that because that's a huge. I think the influence, not really. It's the influence of George Lucas. It's him. It's what what he took growing up and he just kind of snowballed it all into his own thing because it's funny because people note Star Wars as itself being an inspirational kind of piece of pop culture media and yet Star Wars itself was inspired by all these other well that's what's kind so of piece of art that a lot of people about this whole movie it's that a lot of it like you said a lot of it is ripped off yet it seems that it's you know it came out and everyone was like how original it was 
but it really wasn't. And it reminds me of like the Picasso quote. I don't know it exactly, but Picasso said that great artists steal, you know? Yeah. And it's, and it's great because it's kind of just, it's what I see is that it's, it's, and we've talked about this in different ways, but it's like, it's like watching, you know, film kind of repeat itself. And like, uh, yeah, it has blatantly ripped off a lot, but like, it's also what it's doing is it's just going around in a cycle. It's kind of just, it's on this never ending loop, but it's kind of just taking the old and just bringing it to a new generation and bringing it to a new audience. Um, you were talking about the influences. And if you Google it, if you just look at, I had looked at the, you know, top influences for Star Wars. And if you look, there's a, there's a, a, a whole list under the Telegraph and they talk about all these uh, you know, movies you're mentioning and, uh, you know, Hidden yeah, Fortress, Flash The Searchers, Hidden Fortress um, is Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Casablanca, and they all, and it's funny because they talk about how space, they have these specific, uh, yeah, Metropolis, uh, Wizard of Oz. Uh, Wizard you know of Oz I mean? and is 100% about, in this, but go on. Yeah, no, but it's, well, yeah, just to keep, I mean, the, just to, to, I mean, anyway, there's a whole list, but like, if you just do a little digging, you'll see that George was obviously inspired by what you had said is that the hero's journey, it's become a, a, you know, he didn't invent that, but he, what he did is he made it palpable for an audience to watch and go, okay, here is the mentor. Here's the villain. Here's the hero. Here's the, the damsel in distress. Yeah, exactly. He took all, he took everything he could possibly take in, including mythology, not just movies, like I was saying. Right. And he like put it through the Joseph Campbell meat grinder. And we got like this delicious burger of just <laughs> all of this stuff the mythology by the way you know that's how the force came about he studied yeah. the he studied all these religions and took what made them similar and meshed them together you know there is one encompassing force not a god but a force that wills you to do stuff I, you know it binds the galaxy together Yes. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. Oh, I think no. that's what, yeah. what what's uh, what's what's impressive about that is what you're doing is you're taking the entire concept of religion. They don't. I think they they use the word religion. I think in uh, in this movie in this hokey movie religions hokey yeah. religions they talk about. But it's funny what they're doing is they're taking a sense of spirituality and what you're doing is you're you're kind of like putting it in tunnel vision uh for an entire audience so what you're but it's just what's 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 very different about that than actual religion is it's not targeting specific audiences and i think that's what makes the spirituality of star wars incredibly universal and makes it it's part it's part of what makes the whole mythology so um significant is that it reaches out in ways where it doesn't feel like it's targeting there's no there's no G specific jesus allegory or, or buddha allegory. Well, you know what I mean? in the prequels there is because anakin is obviously jesus who he's I mean, immaculately no. conceived he they nailed him to uh, a cross at the end i mean come on <laughs> oh man i'm sorry we can cut that. i mean <laughs> no we should but move no, on but, yes um, keep going so after last we left george in the timeline was uh 1973 american graffiti comes out it's a big success and george got even a best director nod so he's like hot stuff at this point so it's not for another four years that star wars comes out so what the fuck happened right well he came up with this idea of star wars in 1974 like he started cobbling it together, but realized he needed help. So 
because he was having a difficulty conceptualizing it and not only conceptualizing it, have the people he was pitching the movie to understand what is happening. So what is the first thing he does? He hires Ralph McQuarrie, uh, who, for those who don't know, is a big deal in the concept art community. He originally started in a dentistry, actually, not as a dentist, but he was illustrating teeth and equipment for med students, which eventually led him to working for Boeing, where he designed planes, but finally got uh, the gig he wanted at CBS when he did art artwork for the Apollo landing. Um, so in 1975, George Lucas hired Macquarie to create the designs for Star Wars. And he took, uh, like George, he like went back through old concepts of big movies that had come out. Metropolis was a huge influence on the designs of the characters he drew. And with these uh, story panels Ralph McQuarrie gave him, George was able to go to the studios and pitch the ideas and say, this is who I'm talking about. Like this weird creature over here is gonna do this. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, it, it didn't uh, take as easily as you thought until George Lucas met Alan Ladd Jr. Alan Ladd Jr. Is, was an executive uh, He's the executive who greenlit Star Wars. He's also behind Towering Inferno, Turning Point, Norma Ray. He's the one who got Mel Brooks over to 20th Century Fox after his falling out with Warner Brothers. Wow. Yeah. So he he's a big deal. He was also the son of a movie star uh, known as Alan Ladd. Obviously, he's the junior. Right. <laughs> so uh, Alan... Lad pulled George Lucas into the 20th century umbrella uh, because it, he thought that he would be, uh, Lad thought Lucas was a good investment. He loved American graffiti. He loved what it did and he was wanted to do it. Uh, though every board member behind Lad thought he was fucking crazy. <laughs> every single one of them thought, how could you give this man money? Like... <laughs> For this movie. This is a <laughs> cheesy sci-fi uh, movie. You have yeah. to realize up to this point, there had only really been one or two sci-fi movies mm -hmm. that were bigger than like a drama. 2001 A Space Odyssey and Metropolis. Right. That's it. Those are the sci-fi movies held to the top of the ladder here. But like other than that, you're getting pla like Planet Nine you know uh flash gordon the flash fact that that's, the fact that that was one of the bigger influences is kind of like it's a little um well it's not uh, the flash gordon movie it's like the serials from the 30s right and it's but and it's but it's that notion that you're taking what is ultimately a very on paper what is a very campy space opera and you're giving it actual money like you're giving it studio money because mm -hmm. it's funny because this is just an early version you know what what people would later be doing with you know big budget um like like horror and sci-fi and comic book movies like later on in generations but at this time like you're saying like no one had really seen anything like this so i can only imagine being a fly on the wall that during this time it's kind of like yo this is like kind of a gamble here this and is you actually have to put this in con con uh the construct of time as well because this was the 1970s okay the year that this movie was greenlit 
1976, the same year that Taxi Driver came out, the same year that Network came out, you know, all the President's <laughs> Men came out. For these them were to hard, these are hard dramas. <laughs> yeah, these are like critically acclaimed dramas. And for studio, <laughs> so compare Star Wars to those movies at a pitch meeting, okay? <laughs> you're looking at Ralph McQuarrie's artwork, which is beautiful, but you're looking at a robot going on this crazy planet looking for a princess, okay? And you're comparing that to Taxi Driver. In your mind, you're just like, get lad, get how, my- how are you doing this? Like, get out how of my are office. you giving them money? <laughs> now, I, I may be jumping ahead, so correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't George have a snippet of footage that he wanted to use as a pitch and he, he like put a lot of money into the, I don't know if he had a video that he shot and he used that to pitch and like a lot of people were not backing it. Like a lot of, yeah. like, I think that's- It the, didn't I think, help his cause because you're watching an even lower production value of what you want. Oh, right. And people are looking at you like, oh, this is planet nine. Are you crazy? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so ultimately he got a budget of how much do you think that this movie costs to make? In seventy in nineteen seventy seven. Don't look it up. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, uh, I'm assuming George probably put like, I don't know, a couple thousand bucks. Probably put a couple grand on the table. This movie was eleven made from eleven million dollars. Oh my god, good grief! That is insane, right? I thought George had a couple G's. No, I know they'd have to have real money. They'd have to have a couple of mil, but uh, that's why this movie is the most successful indie movie that has ever been made. Because that's nothing. Eleven million dollars right now is nothing. Like yeah, for, yeah. Endgame costs like two hundred fifty million dollars to make. Okay, like, um, uh, but George during negotiations took a big pay cut for making this movie. He took a three hundred fifty thousand dollar pay cut. In return, he got the rights to the sequels and the rights to all merchandise. Oh my God. So $350,000 in exchange for the rights to the sequels and merchandise. I mean, someone knew it. In negotiations, Lad thought he was getting a great deal. In retrospect, it was the worst deal that could have ever been made ever it is arguably the worst trade deal in american this history. has been the worst <laughs> trade deal in the history of trades this is terrible i mean honestly the the rights and the merchandise we've talked about it before but it's like that is that is star wars like that's what culminates like it's money. merchandising like, merchandising I mean, I, I mean, merchandising <laughs> space balls the flamethrower <laughs> may the schwartz i mean i don't remember where it, I don't remember where it came up that we talked about how, I mean, I think we talked, I think even in the prequel episodes, we, we talked about that, like, you know, you're throwing in characters and things for for um, for merch. And we talked about like how the droids, the droids are all merch factors. One um, of the original ideas you and I had for a, um, what's it called? For a category, the award categories we do at the end was about merchandise. We were talking, we were pitching back and forth the idea of like, best toy from the movie that we owned you know ultimately it didn't right. work out because by the time we get to right. revenge uh, rise of skywalker it's like i don't want any of that toys but 
I mean, you know, merchandise let me tell you, my, my, my Kelly Marie Tran, my Kelly Marie Tran action figure from The Rise of Skywalker, I had it for a full 73 seconds before it kind of broke and fell apart and other people came and they yelled it. They yelled at me for having it. Anyway, the, um, toy, the merchandise and the toys is a great story. Also, we just don't have time to cover it. If you no, want to learn more about it, go watch the toys that made us on net, on Netflix. I was going to say that's a great show. It, it is a really good show. That's a great show. But the first episode is literally about the Star Wars toys. If you want more, go watch it. So okay. casting. Uh, De Palma helped out with the process of casting. Let's talk about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Originally... It was not going to Alec Guinness. Right. The first choice was Toshiro Mufuni. For those who do not know, he is a very big Japanese star. He is in a lot of Kurosawa films. He's in The Seven Samurai. Uh, what's it called? Sanju, Sanjuro. Uh, uh, Yojimbo. Yojimbo. A lot of the big highs and lows, which is really good. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, high and low? High and low, yeah. Where Sorry. the kids, the, the, the guy's kid is, is uh, kidnapped or the yeah. he's got the ransom phone call. Great movie. That uh, movie's cr- amazing. Criminally so, underrated. He, yeah. Drunken Angel. He, he's in a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, Mufuni turned it down. He said that the, he didn't think that this movie would do justice to the samurai, uh, uh, to the samurai uh, films. What? You mean glowing, glowing uh, samurai swords? You know, exactly. come on. <laughs> so it went to Alec Guinness who thought that the movie would be fun and he liked the idea of playing an old mentor. So he was like, fuck it. Why not? And his um, career wasn't like booming at this point. Anyway, uh, I recently read a list of, it was like top 10 actors who admittedly took roles just for the money. And Alec Guinness was like one of the top cho- act- actors. Cause initially he's like, Oh, I'll, I'll do it for the money. But he actually. I was going to say one it. of the things that he got, he got a little bit of the back end of this movie. Right. But Which he was a big part. He, um, but I guess he was invested. I guess he like he enjoyed, you know, whatever. Was I mean, what he said on camera during an interview and what his real thought process are are two completely different things. It looked like he had fun. I don't know. I think it was just a payday too. But um, you could have fun on a payday. Of course. I tried there was to every ultimately day. the rumor that came out that he hated star wars a lot of people thought that he hated it and there was an interview that came out a little while ago and if you watch it alec got very candid and he said i don't hate star wars i hate that it's the only role that i will ever be remembered for and you know what like i i get that because every now and again you hear actors who feel like they're not it's not even that they're typecast it's that they're only recognized for these these small very um not small roles they're they're only recognized for specific roles and almost nothing else and it's funny because i remember being in film school and watching a bunch of british films with alec guinness in it and that was like for a long time like that was his career yeah, lady killer um what's the other one i'm thinking of bridge on the river Kwai. he's in yeah. a lot of great movies Lawrence of Arabia, you brought it up earlier. He's in a yeah. lot of great movies, which is why he's like, I'm only going to be remembered for this one. But I and I was in Bridge in the River Kwai and like, Lawrence it, of Arabia. Like, those are two of the best movies ever. You know, right? It's outrageous. So maybe it wasn't complete ego because those two movies won Best Picture. They're right, right. Lawrence of, of Arabia is arguably one of my favorite movies ever. Oh, it's a, it's a masterpiece. So the main three 
Lucas saw countless actors that, for that casting process, like countless. Um, for Han Solo, he looked at Christopher Walken, Kurt Russell, Sylvester Stallone, Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds, uh, Leia. What, he looked at Jodie Foster and Cindy Williams. Luke, Kurt Russell came back in the mix. Charles Martin Smith, who was in American Graffiti, came into the mix at one point. Now, the obviously none of them got the part because Han went to uh, Harrison Ford, who George had previously worked on American Graffiti with, and he was very hesitant to work with an actor that he worked with before. That's how the story goes. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Did, didn't they have another actor in mind for for Han and then I don't know if they started shooting or if they were like getting ready to begin and then like something happened where the actor dropped out and then like Harrison Ford kind of stepped in and it wasn't even really uh, the first choice I mean yeah. obviously it wasn't the first choice but I didn't know if it was like something he was additionally I didn't in after see that it might be true I feel mm -hmm. like that was more of an Indiana Jones situation okay because Indiana Jones was originally not supposed to go to Harrison Ford either uh which is crazy but so, it's funny that if, i'm sorry it's just funny harrison ford's career um kind of like uh, alec guinness it it, fall, it banks on these like giant 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 movies and it's funny these these very like couple roles that he did and it's just funny harrison ford especially is kind of just very blase about the whole thing he just kind of shrugs it off like he either almost wasn't cast or he wasn't the first choice and then these movies blow up and he's kind of like yeah whatever i don't care my favorite harrison <laughs> ford joke uh, it's not even a joke my favorite harrison ford uh quote was when he was asked about force ghosts because obviously <laughs> He comes back in in the uh, Rise of Skywalker, and and someone asked him like, "Are you a Force ghost?" And he turns to the reporter. He says, "I don't know what the fuck that is, and I don't care." <laughs> oh um, my god, it's incredible! Yeah, you but can't make the, it up. At the time in 1976, Harrison Ford was actually more of a carpenter than he was an actor because he wasn't booking too many gigs. Right. He was actually working on Francis Ford Coppola's house at the time of the casting. And Lucas used him as a stand-in uh, for the other actors to audition with. Ultimately, like you said, it went to him. It probably through the way you said. Yeah. Luke um, obviously went to Mark Hamill. I don't really have a story of how he got the part. The only story I heard is that he was told about the audition by his roommate at the time who was Robert Engels, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. I didn't know that. Um, Vader was not originally James Earl Jones's voice either. It was Orson Welles until he got the axe. That would have uh, been a very different movie. Yeah. 3PO was also not supposed to get Anthony Daniels' voice. They liked what he was doing on set, and they're running a little short on cash. Um, but originally, the voice was supposed to go to Mel Blanc, or as oh. everyone knows him as Bugs Bunny. Wow. Would have, <laughs> would have been a very, a very different. 
I want to. I'm just picturing a Rick and Morty style like alternate timeline where they're going through like different multiverses or whatever, and they and it's just a quick blip. Like they stop into, and it's like which dimension is this? And it's like oh, this is the one where all the all the casting choices for the original Star Wars actually got the green light, and it's just a quick snippet, and you just hear like Orson Welles as Darth Vader. And Mel Blanc as C-3PO and, and see- Toshiro Mifune as Alec Guinness. <laughs> as, uh, and you Obi-Wan. just see, uh, you know, you see C-3PO like, hey, what's up, Luke? You know, when he's got a little, uh, like a robot carrot. <laughs> hmm. oh, what's up, Doc? What's up, Vader? <laughs> so let's talk about filming. Yeah, of course. It, it was a nightmare. <laughs> An absolute nightmare. Uh, it began filming on March 22nd, 1976 in Tunisia. Needless to say, it was hot. The R2-D2 robot never worked. C-3PO's costume shattered, uh, which supposedly the costume started stabbing Daniels. <laughs> um, and then it moved the set after that nightmare. They moved to L Street, which you would think would be nicer to be on set but it was not. The crew were com- was completely obnoxious. They couldn't conceptualize what the fuck they were filming. They pushed their luck because they thought that they could push around a 26-year-old director, which is astounding to remember that George Lucas was that fucking young making That's this crazy. movie. Uh, Lucas constantly clashed with his cinematographer, uh, Gilbert. The budget kept inflating. <laughs> The cast and crew were just like not really taking it seriously either. There's a lot of behind the scenes footage of like Harrison Ford ripping George Lucas apart on set, you know, like there was one shot where they're running down the hall and it turns out they just weren't filming. Lucas didn't hit the cinematographer, didn't hit the like go button on the camera, I guess. (laughs) And they're like, you weren't filming. Tis, tis, tis. Like, to shame. <laughs> it's just, like, hilarious stuff. Uh, so, the film was originally scheduled to come out Christmas Day, 1976. But due to the visual effects and the budget and the filming, the actual movie was not done until April 27th, uh, 22nd, 1977. And the film came out on May 25th, 1977. Jeez. So cutting it a little tight. That's close. <laughs> now, the visual effects obviously pushed him back because no movie had ever been doing what Lucas was trying to do. It, to manage this, he created ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, a studio that is still very much in work. They're actually one of the biggest and best at what they do. Them and Weta are like the top tier CG people, visual effects people. Yeah. Uh, it was headed by John uh, Dystra. Uh, sure. Slippy, swampy. Swampy, swamp, yeah. Slippy, swamp, Swanson. Sam's tonight. It's, it's astounding what they did uh, because a lot of it was just movie trickery. They went back and looked at like old footage of like magician tricks to figure out how <clears> to do this. They never George had... Melies. Yeah, they literally did. The I Death mean, Star it's... you see blowing up. Yeah. It consisted of cardboard and titanium bits. I I will say, and you, I'm sure I, I'm sure you have a separate section you may want to dive into it. But the actual production of this movie, I won't dive in. But it's kind of like it's astounding when you look at what was done 
by lack of computer effects, like what was done practically, like the actual, what they were able to maneuver just by trick of the eye. Like you yeah. said, old Luke's school. land speeder. Yeah. They were able to make it look like it hovers through hiding the wheels under mirrors. You know, it's like stupid yeah. movie trickery. That I mean, it's cool. Just pull off like that. Um, it's very admirable. I love, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. The post-production supposedly is what saved this movie though uh but before i go into that let's talk about the lucas terrible no good very bad screening that happened that is famous um lucas invited the movie brats over for those who don't know that is scorsese de palma spielberg and john landis they all sat around to watch george lucas's first cut of star wars now, first cut does not mean that it's done. It means it's very far from done. There's diff- there's footage that's not shot. There's like animatics in it. They watched it and they all hated it. Hated it, except for Spielberg. Spielberg's the only one who believed in it. De Palma got so vicious in his taunts of this movie that he felt that even he felt bad about what he had been saying. And he is not a man to feel bad about what he's saying. <laughs> He got. He felt so bad that he came in and rewrote the opening crawl for the movie. That's oh, that's right. We had talked about that. Yeah. So Lucas had to go back to the drawing board, and it is in the editing process that the movie was saved. The movie was edited a lot in part by Mar- uh, yeah, Marcia Lucas, who is George Lucas's wife, uh, Paul Herschel, uh, and Richard Chu. They all made vast improvements over the movie. On top of that. Uh, John Williams' score was added onto it, and Ben Burtt's sound effects were added onto that. So everything it all came together, came in, a, together. in a way that. And really I think I said it everything. a couple of weeks ago, maybe more. But the best part of, or the saving grace of this movie, is the editing. This movie could have been really bad if one frame was out of line. There is, and I, I um, you know, we'll get more. I'll I'll say it more toward the end, but it's kind of just like the way this movie tiptoes these lines of like where you can see on it just basically could like there are just so many moments where just between dialogue and editing and and just shots and just like the way it plays out where you're like you can just see it where you're like it's almost it's it almost seems like it's on the brink of failing in almost every single scene which is why the uh studio was so worried because they're looking at these dailies and their worst fears are coming to light. They're looking at it going, we gave this man $11 million and this is the shit he's giving us. <laughs> like that no one, and that's why he got the, a lot of rebellious states on set too, because a lot of people just are looking at what is being filmed and they're like, this is like, what are we doing? You know, this man has no idea. I'm imagining a bunch of Hollywood bigwigs in suits and cigars, and they're watching just this, this these desert shots of 3PO and R2-D2 just, like, going back and forth with dialogue, and then just sitting there like, this, these robots? Are these the... Are these the main characters? And they're going like, no, no, they can't What's give a... What's going on here? We're spending a lot of time with these, with these robots. So... <laughs> Luke, this is the top note on IMDb, so I just want to make this note. And oh, I do have like a what you're saying too. Oh, no, yeah. um, the top note of, with, with the premiere before you get the Oscars is that Lucas was so sure that this movie would flop that instead of attending the premiere, 
he went on vacation to Hawaii with his good friend, Steven Spielberg. And upon finding out that Star Wars had become a success while they were there, they had come up with the idea for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> now, it's that's funny, but do you want to hear something even better? Of course. Uh, it also has to do with Spielberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So George Lucas, after filming Star Wars, came back to uh, California and he visited his good friend Spielberg on his set. He was filming Close Encounters of the Third Kind at the exact same time. And George was a wreck, like just like destroyed, a destroyed shell of a man. <laughs> and he was looking around the set and he said to Spielberg, you have everything together. Like <laughs> your movie is going to be more successful than mine ever will be. And either being a good friend or knowing he needed a boost, Spielberg was like, no, no way. Like your movie is going to be fucking amazing, man. Like it's going to be a big hit. It's going to be, be amazing. so good, man. It's so, going to be so good. Lucas and Spielberg made a bet. Lucas said, if Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a more successful movie, I get 2.5% of the gross. And if my, and if Spielberg's, uh, Spielberg would get 2.5% of the gross of Star Wars. This was a it bet was between Star Wars and Close Encounters? Yes, this was a okay. bet between Spielberg and Lucas. So Spielberg obviously won the bet. <sighs> Star Wars was more successful. Yeah. And he made 2.5% of all of Star Wars' Star Wars's income for years to come. He has made this... millions of dollars off of Star Wars for doing absolutely nothing. Is this is this a, a Reddit uh, a copy a copy pasta? Or is that, did you just make this? Did you is this real? Is this fact that this you, is fact? Spielberg has said that this told this story. That's amazing because I know that they. I mean, I love the history of the Brat Pack or whatever you call it, the uh, movie Brat, not the Brat, but the movie Brat Pack. But it's uh... the movie Brat. <laughs> but I I I love it. Makes the mythology of the friendships and the and the filmmakers. I it makes it a little more deep for me. I think it gives it more. I don't know. There's something more special about going back and like knowing the history of these movies to know that they have that history. Because apparently, and I don't, um, I don't know the my source on this, but I, apparently, I think it was when 1941 bombed that. 1942. No, the Spielberg's movie. 19. Oh, uh, was for yeah. Never mind. Go but on. apparently, I guess when that movie bombed, Spielberg took it hard because it was his only sh attempt at making a comedy. Yeah, and I guess at that point when he was so bummed out that Lucas came to comfort him and was like, "Listen, buddy, I'll help you out." Well, and apparently they planned the next Indiana Jones after that. So it's kind of like, I don't know, like that's like those kind of stories about like these uh, filmmakers coming to each other's aids to kind of like help out. It's just like a uh, you know, yeah, well, very, very endearing. <laughs> we'll get into Indiana Jones when we do the Indiana Jones movies. So needless to say, this movie was um, a big hit. Yes, and you were going on about the Oscars. So obviously well, before I get to the Oscars, I just wanted to mention that this is the first, like, Jaws is technically the first blockbuster, but this is, like, the first, like, blockbuster. This is, like, every movie theater got rid of every movie. We're showing Star Wars 24-7. Well, like, yeah, it, there's that. It made in 1977 dollars. Four hundred and six million ninety nine, whatever. So it's like four hundred seven million dollars, which means if you were to adjust for inflation, this movie is still number four. 
of the highest grossing movies ever. I mean, you see that footage where every now and again, I mean, when you watch anything, any documentary or anything about Star Wars and they talk about the premiere, they'll show footage of those giant theaters in LA wherever with the palm trees where like they're literally wrapping around the block. They're literally like you see these lines going around and then you like you'll show these like kids or or eventually it became like people in like Star Wars t-shirts and stuff like that. It eventually grew. And like I always see that footage and I think what I'd give to like just again be a fly on the wall a lot of flies but just to be able to just to see that that environment of these people who are going back because people kept going to see it again and again it became a word of mouth kind of movie the closest you can come to like understanding it is probably watching the episode of that 70s show where they see star wars yeah the the show overall is not great but i highly recommend that one episode it's uh a clunky to keep continuity a clunky ending but uh it's got it's got a few moments that 70 show eh, i don't know anyway the oscars it was nominated for 10 it won seven it was it won for best original score obviously like this score is iconic uh, best production design best visual effects best sound mixing best costume design best film editing and a special award for ben burt which I didn't count as the nominees because you can't get nominated for a special award. Mm-hmm. It was also nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Alec Guinness was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, George, again, was nominated for Best Director. And it was nominated for Best Screenplay. A lot of these awards went to Woody Allen for Annie Hall, which in retrospect, I guarantee the Oscars wish they gave the award to Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, as of the time of this recording, and then, I mean, it's always been at the time of whenever, but now it's come to light even more, especially with the, as of this recording, the current HBO series. Uh, when it Allen ended by now, right? Or just a series had, had just ended, I think. I don't remember. You know, I didn't watch row. it. I... Either way, but um, just, but yes, and just to, to tag on, add on to what you're saying, uh, yes, you'd think that maybe if they could have gone back. I, I don't think that they would have given Best Picture to Annie <laughs> Hall or Best Director to Woody Allen uh, or Best Screenplay or give him anything. But uh, I will say, just to shift the conversation, just to shift what you're saying about the Oscars, it's telling that even today with the Star Wars sequel trilogy, the a lot of Star, Star Wars movies seem to get nominated for the same kind of awards with sound mixing and, and, and special effects and design and costume and whatnot. But this was nominated for Best Picture. Like, that's how big of a phenomenon yes. this movie was, which is astounding. Yes, of course. And in yeah. Best Director, it, Woody, it went to Woody Allen, obviously, but the yeah. other nominees were George Lucas, Herbert Ross for The Turning Point, Steven Spielberg for Close Encounters, and Fred Zimmerman for Julia. It's just interesting to me that Lucas and Spielberg were both nominated for sci-fi movies in one year. That's cool. You don't see yeah. it. You, I mean, you certainly wouldn't see that a lot, you know, really anymore, but. No, you definitely would not. All right. That's all I got. So Beautiful. you're ready to finally get into the plot. <laughs> long time ago in a galaxy far far away it is a period of civil war rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire 
During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. For those paying attention, this is a reference to Rogue One. This is from last week. Rogue One. No, chronologically for our listeners. (laughs) That is a... (laughs) Yes, if you didn't realize, you know, that's where we are. Okay, sorry. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Over Tatooine, the Tanti fours at full speed. In pursuit is the massive Imperial cruiser, or Star Destroyer. C-3PO, Anthony Daniels, and R2-D2, Kenny Baker, move around as the rebels ready their weapons. The doors blow and stormtroopers breach. Through the fog, Darth Vader, David Prowess, and James Earl Jones enter, enters. In secret, Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher, records a secret message and hides the Death Star plans in R2. Vader is seen again holding a man up by th- his neck. Enraged, he shouts to his men, Commander, tear this ship apart until you found those plans and bring me the passengers. I want them alive! I want them alive! I want them alive! No. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Leia is captured, but R2 and C-3PO jettison to the nearby planet. Uh, On Tatooine, C-3PO and R2 get into an argument over which direction to head. They separate, but are quickly reunited on a Jawa sand crawler. All the droids are lined up, inspected by Owen Lars, Phil Brown. He picks out C-3PO, who speaks bocce, don't worry, uh, and R5. Moments after the deal, R5 explodes. Just so we can note this, you actually see R5 again in The Mandalorian. Really? Uh, he survives. And if you, wow. read, if you read the book, um, A Certain Point of View, which it, it, there are a couple of them now, I think. I didn't read the other one. But the first one was took place during episode four. You like see the views of what's happening on the screen, but from different vantage points. So I love when that happens. It's like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. That's exactly uh, what it is. Well, that's, that's what awesome. C3PO and R2D2 are too. But yeah. um, R5 explodes intentionally because the night before R2 was like, I have a secret mission. And R5 was like, okay, I'm going to help you. Uh, Some heavy nerd shit. Yeah. <laughs> Some deep, sweaty lore. C3PO, while well, in the Legends, R5 is the only Force-sensitive droid. Stop it. (laughs) C-3PO insists to Luke Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill, that Owen should buy R2. While cleaning up the droids, Luke discovers a partial message. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Luke wonders if R2 means old Ben Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi. I wonder if he means old Ben. I also love in this scene he's like wow she's beautiful oh man the the incest definitely got a boost from game of thrones but this is like the first time that it's well i i love the toss-up as to like where where people think george was toying with the idea of them being brother and sister was it early on was it you know in the second in the next movie was it by the end of the second movie you know at what point did he do it because did he or did he know all along well this has been an argument for forever because Lucas said that he had everything planned out but there's also very conflicting reports that 
No way. He he didn't even know that Vader was Luke's father. No until... way. I don't. I I don't think there's that's true at all. But I, I don't don't think so either. There can't. There can't be. Anyway. Um. Before the rest of the message is played, Amperu, Sheila Fraser, Fraser calls to Luke for dinner. The conversation does not go well as Owen tells Luke that he needs to stay on the farm for an extra season. Luke leaves the table. The music swells as he looks out on the binary sunset. Back in the garage, Luke finds R2 has gone looking for Obi-Wan. Now, let's just make a quick note here. Uh, Luke says he needs to stay on the farm for an extra season as they are harvesting water. Yes. Well, on a desert planet such as Tatooine, you can imagine that water is a needed resource. It's just funny because I feel like they don't call specific attention to this. It's kind of like, I'm st- I'm here to farm, but it's kind of like they don't really elaborate on it. Yeah. They are moisture farmers. That's what they right. do. They right. harvest water for the planet because it is a desert planet. And it is hard to come by water. It's pretty, uh, pretty. I mean, I can imagine, you know, it's. And Jabba the Hutt obviously does not want a mass influx of water. It's kind of like Mad Max Fury Road in that part. Yeah, you know? it almost sounds like a political regime, you know, a kind of a, a little. Immortan to... Joe doesn't want you to have water. Immortan Jabba. Mad. <laughs> Immortan <laughs> Jabba. Oh, I would love to see Jabba the Hutt in a high speed chase. <laughs> Sitting in his little, but it's moving so it's, it's just sitting there when moving in his little chair, and he's got the little uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, uh, Salacious B. Crumb. That's Robin's oh, favorite yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about him later. Um, let's, let's stay on track here. The next day, Luke quickly finds R2 by the Tuscan Raiders, also known as the Sand People in this film. <laughs> do not speak those words, yeah. The Sand People will be back and in greater numbers. <laughs> But the Tuscan Raiders quickly find him, knocking him unconscious. A a screech howls in the distance. It is Ben Kenobi. Now, we're not going to uh, dive into, I guess, like, all the edits and stuff will come afterward. This is, because because this is the version now, this has sequences and sounds and shit that are the Lucas cuts of the Star Wars movies. So, right, because you and I don't have to dive in and say, because anything we say will have already been said by countless of people about the edits, and we don't yeah. have to talk about that. But I make a note of it because that, the, the screech that Ben ultimately is revealed to be Ben Kenobi has changed, if I'm not mistaken, at least two or three times. Yeah, it has changed, I think, three times. And right now it is a ridiculous screech that I don't think any human could possibly make, even if you are a Jedi. It's a ridiculous howl, and I don't know if it's the one with the whistle. No, I think it used to be more of just a whistle, and now it's like a a cooing. It's literally like a dragon screech. And, you know, it's a cool sound effect until you realize, wait, a human it's, has to be making uh, That it's Alec Guinness. <laughs> Alec Guinness is making this crazy sound. This is ridiculous. Uh, and it is revealed to be Ben Kenobi. Hello there. Come here, my little friend. Don't be afraid. Uh, and reference that hello there. Who would have known what that would have spawned? You know, well, from you and McGregor, it being influenced by it, and then it turning to a damn meme. <laughs> well, what's funny is if we're taking chronological events into account here, 
we first, I mean, chronological in the sense of like Star Wars universe. Yeah. The first person to say those words is actually General Grievous to Obi-Wan Kenobi. So this is something Obi-Wan has acquired from General Grievous. Grievous says hello there to... To To Obi-Wan in the Clone Wars. Oh, in the Clone Wars. Yeah. Oh. General Grievous is the one who instilled that phrase into Obi-Wan's... So, yeah. I, I like in the lore, one of Obi-Wan's, you know, signature lines is stolen from... From General uh, Grievous. From General Grievous, who he eventually kills. Luke regains consciousness and tells Ben that R2 is looking for an Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. Long time. Long time. Of course, Ben knows Obi-Wan. It's me. I haven't gone by the name of Obi-Wan since, oh, before you were born. For fear of more Tuscans, they go to Ben's hut on the high ground of the Dune Sea. He goes always on the high ground. Always on the high ground. There, Ben tells Luke that he fought alongside his father in the Clone Wars. Uh, Expunging saying that uh, Luke's father was once a Jedi Knight. Ben then uh, gifts Luke his father's old lightsaber. What is it? father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. How did my father die? A young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct. Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force. The Force? The Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. I will say it's in hindsight what like what Rogue One does for A New Hope in terms of it. Well, that's different. It's a whole movie about just like one little plot. But it's a, it's great that this one little bit's a bit of dialogue, you know, about the Clone Wars. Your father was this, he betrayed. And, and it's just funny because I remember seeing... Um, the Revenge of the Sith teasers, and they they took that clip, they took this clip from this movie, and then they used the audio and they overplayed it over the footage. And I remember being young and just getting chills watching that because it's amazing just what this little speech does for what it created in the long run, you know? This speech, I think, is the most consequential throughout Star Wars history, like Star Wars fandom history. I agree. Because this little speech is what caused such a revolt against the prequels for so many years Mm -hmm. because he's telling Luke that the force is an energy field that like anyone can breach. Right. But then you get to the Phantom Menace and midi-chlorians are added into the mix. And we talked about that. And yeah. And on here you're being told about the clone wars and for years people are like, okay, what is the clone wars? That sounds awesome. They've written fan fiction, all this stuff. And then Lucas comes in with, not until the TV show, people were disappointed by what the Clone Wars was in the movies because you don't really you don't really see it. So, you know. 
but it's amazing it's that consequential. it, it uh, but it, uh, yeah and the way it trickles down eventually it spawned the clone Wars series which is now beloved by you know almost everyone it's also the conversation that gives the biggest hurdle to mm-hmm. the coming movies where he says that vader murdered your father <laughs> um i know he says it's from a certain point of view but i call bullshit on that that's a lie that's a blatant lie i don't well, care whose interpretation you're counting like that that's crazy well he betrayed and murdered your father because in a way the character of anakin skywalker was betrayed you're you're doing the from a certain point of view shit here i'm just saying you're, he may be trying to protect luke in this moment you're saying oh no no i oh sorry 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 you're saying that obi-wan is intentionally lying to luke yeah so oh i i don't disagree with that i thought you were saying bullshit on him uh lucas you know saying that it's uh no i'm saying there's not something more to it i'm saying obi-wan is flat out lying that's what I'm oh saying. i i i no i think that's also i think that's a fact yeah, where I think, but I think Yoda that you can look at that line. Like Yoda doesn't talk about his father. Like, right? I think you can look at so that. What about line. my father? What I didn't hear what you said. Did you say something? <laughs> say something? Did you like? Oh, but either way, it was uh, you know the way the what it spawned afterward is obviously far bigger than what it seems like in just the scene. It's a great bit, but um, nevertheless, um, R two interrupts to play the message from Leia. General Kenobi, it's you're the putting whole in speech. all this. Yeah, you, you don't have to read it all. Ben sits back in his chair, pulling his beard. He wants Luke to learn the Force and to join him on this adventure. Luke, like his uncle, says he cannot go. Ben reassures him, you must do what you feel is right, of course. That's a line that I use in my daily life, like, countless times. I, I mean, I, I usually use, um, who is, uh... Who's more foolish, who's more the fool foolish, or the, the fool, 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 who follow, fool who follows him. On the Death Star, the High Imperial Command is meeting to discuss the battle station and the missing plans now i just want to point out fun fact like if you watch that scene now there is an empty chair in that boardroom after rogue one lucasfilm like retconned it and said yeah that's the chair meant for orson credit really yeah i mean obviously lucas didn't think of that but no of course not lucasfilm coerced it and they're like that chair was meant for krennic that's why it's empty that says a I lot think that's about, brilliant that says a lot about what lucasfilm does as a whole by uh, by dissecting these movies down to every detail i mean like, yep that can mean this and this can mean that and you know yeah, we make the rules i love it um the imperial command are worried about the senate's reaction to the battle station Grand Moff Tarkin, Peter Cushing, walks in telling his cohorts that the Senate has been dissolved. Regional governors and fear will keep the systems in line. Everyone is excited, but Vader reminds them the power of the Force by choking uh, Admiral Conan Antonio Modi, which is the most pretentious Imperial name ever. Uh, Back on Tatooine, Luke and Ben find a sandcrawler completely obliterated. At a first glance, it looks like Tuscan Raiders, but at closer examination, it shows that it was Stormtroopers. This moment to me is hilarious because Obi-Wan is like, <laughs> says something along the lines of like, Sam people aren't as like good shots as these people. Mm-hmm. You know, they're walking in line. I'm like, the Stormtroopers are the worst shots I've ever seen. You're telling me that they can cause a clean kill of Jawas where the target is smaller? Get out of here. No way. You can barely no shoot way. people their own size. 
Oh, man. Um, Luke, scared, runs home to find Owen and Baru burned, like, charred. They're Skeletons. literally toast. Um, <laughs> Luke forces him to look... Force, Luke forces himself to look at them, which is a powerful sequence when he, it like, looks away and then is like, no, I have to look. Like, um, this is my motivator. It'll come back, of course, during our categories, but the music in these in this scene specifically leading into is so the way the the high violence and the way that they I mean yes of course it's a powerful scene regardless but just even like the way they play it out it's just it's yeah. it it's one of those moments that this they they nail it you know Luke scared uh sorry about that he returns to Ben telling him he will go to Alderaan they head to the wreckage hive of scum and villainy that is most Eisley space station in the cantina, Ben finds the Wookiee Chewbacca, played by Peter Mayhew, who leads him to Han Solo, Harrison Ford, captain of the Millennium Falcon. They agree to 2,000 credits up front and 15 when they arrive on Alderaan. Ben and Luke go to sell the speeder. Han, confronted by Greedo, uh, you know, we could debate who shot first, but Greedo falls. This there new is... one, this newest one with the McClunky though, is ridiculous. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> I saw when they put it on Disney Plus because I remember I hadn't watched it when it came on Disney Plus, and then all of a sudden I saw headlines on like social media on the internet, and it's like Greedo scene edited yet again, this time with new McClunky line, and I was like, no way. This and is watched... this is the sequence that has been altered the most out of every Star Wars sequence, and I just don't understand it. We obviously don't have to talk about it again. We'll net we'll not bring anything new to the table that that fanboys have not debated for years, and there's nothing to debate. I mean, it's just it's a McClunky. shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, again, this is the um, Lucas cut, so I'm just gonna get through this even though i think that this is really terrible <laughs> at the hangar bay jabba the hut calls for han they reach an agreement but jabba warns if he is not paid han will not get away i i hate that sequence i think it's awful i don't which, get which it one? like han and han and jabba so my thing about it is that i like it because it teases jabba even though they never ever got his look right i mean no, the he looks awful the 1997 cgi the fact that they re-released that in a movie theater is bananas to me because if you 97 jabba is one of my favorites i i can't believe that it, it they someone put it on a big screen but even the 2004 jabba it's like it's like okay he looks way better but he still doesn't look good and then there's the whole tail thing because they shot the thing with a human actor and and Terrace and ford it's just not organic in the way that his head moves in the greedo shooting scene the not way that his- only that but that to me is horrible for setting up jabba's character because the jabba we meet in episode six would not allow anyone to step on his tail are you kidding me like Jabba the Hutt is a feared gang boss he is a mob boss like you don't disrespect him like that it makes no sense and And Greedo is standing right behind him again like what it's is that Greedo I thought it was just another he's wearing the exact same clothing as Greedo they wouldn't I I, and they were running short on cash on set I I think that they just threw him in there I always assumed it was just supposed to be a different, I because I think a that Lucas is covering their bases. Anyway, but I think what ultimately, what aside from everything that you're saying is, which is I, I agree with, is that 
ultimately what the scene is doing is it's 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 contradicting its own storytelling because what it's doing is saying exactly what Greedo just said to Han. It's like you owe money, you're you know you're a scum, and like we're gonna come after you. And it's really just not give doing anything new. So it's like I just say keep Jabba a secret. Like it's more terrifying hearing about him than it I is agree. actually. I hundred percent agree. And seeing him in this terrible light. Anyway, let's move on. Luke, Ben, and the droids arrive in the hangar. There isn't much time to talk as stormtroopers arrive and start blasting. The Falcon takes off and jumps to light speed. Leia is brought to the bridge of the Death Star. Tarkin threatens to destroy her homeworld of Alderaan unless she gives up the rebel base. She angrily shouts, Dantooine. Tarkin orders Alderaan destroyed anyway. On the Falcon, Ben feels Alderaan's destruction and needs to sit down. This guy always needs to sit down. This is a guy who <laughs> likes to sit. This is a man who likes to sit down. Luke practices the force with his lightsaber. Han scoffs at this whole thing. Ha, hokey religions and all that jargon. Uh, the alarm goes off. It is time to land. They come out of light speed in the rubble of Alderaan and are pulled into the tractor beam of the Death Star, which Ben notes is no moon but a space station. That's no moon. That's no moon. Uh, Stormtroopers inspect the Falcon and find no passengers. However, Vader can sense a presence. A presence I've not felt since... Out of, the sm out, <laughs> out of the smuggler's compartment, the heroes emerge. Ben goes to turn off the tractor beam. Luke learning Leia is in prison, coerces Han and Chewie to run a rescue mission. They put Chewie in binders and bring him to the prison. Once, once there, they shoot all the stormtroopers and the cameras. An Imperial call to verify everything is all right. Han's response, everything fine down here. How are you? <laughs> One of the few beats of the of the of star wars in general where they go for a genuine jokes or humor and like it really works upon opening the door leia snipes aren't you a little short to be a stormtrooper luke removes his helmet saying he's here to rescue her so disrespectful to the high well, stay in here and rot you stuck up in <laughs> <laughs> the stormtrooper family guy I'm yeah yeah of course of course of course the stormtroopers arrive and the heroes jump into the garbage chute the trash compactor begins to close on them and they narrowly escape being crushed by contacting C-3PO. They run into more stormtroopers, but rendezvous with the Falcon. There is so much happening Remember right now. Remember the trash compactor? Oh, I maybe. <laughs> ben lowers the tractor beam. There is a lot happening in this. There's, I'm, I, I, if we stopped, we just, I'd be here all day. We're going to be here, yeah. Ben lowers, ben lowers the tractor beam, but does not intend to go back to the Falcon. Instead, he confronts his old apprentice. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, does. I just love this. I was the I was but the learner, but now I am the master. It's a now, great <laughs> two things. One, he's still an apprentice because Sith myth, you know, Sith lore. There's a master and an apprentice, so you're still an apprentice, my dude. And two, not many people know this. But the line was actually supposed to be, nobody cared who I was till I put on the mask. <laughs> that's a that's a lie. I just thought I'd bring back the Dark Knight Rises. Well, we have to bring some kind of continuity back into our show. We've been doing this for almost a year now. Um, nobody cared till I put on the mask. Till I put on the mask. That's um. I guess he is still an apprentice. I don't know if they break that rule of two number. Or I guess because well, I guess they reveal an empire that uh, you know uh, Vader is still really under. He actually bows to, or he takes a knee yeah. to look at the hologram of 
And for anyway, we'll, we'll get there next week. We'll get there next week. Alright, thank you. Their uh their lightsabers clash and Ben Warren's Vader. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> um Ben's plan works uh all the stormtroopers uh, watch the duel. The heroes load onto the Falcon, except Luke, who watches. Ben looks back to Luke and surrenders to the Force. Holding his lightsaber up, Vader strikes him down, and his body vanishes. Vader's, Vader's momentary confusion allows the Falcon to take off. The Falcon is pursued by TIE fighters, but still manages to get away. Leia says, Leia says that they can escape. It's the only explanation for their easy escape. Tarkin confirm, confirms this moment. Con- God damn it. Tarkin confirms this moments later. Yeah, there's a lot so, there. So so much to unpack. I didn't so mean to blitz through the There's so much to go through, but anyway. Yeah, uh we we don't have time to unpack all that. Um on yeah, great act great action sequences. It's great. It's really fun. It's really it's honestly it, we're really not focusing on the fun parts of this movie because we focused a lot on what was going on on Tatooine, which sure isn't bad. It's just all set up. Yeah. This is like the crux of it all where you're just like going from room to room. This is where the Flash I, Gordon serial it's so style good. comes in because there's it's, one thing happening after another. It's an I adventure. Mean, and that's what's ultimately great about it is that it, it really is kind of a, it's not a slow beginning, but all like you spend a lot of time with R2 and 3P on Tatooine and then you meet the characters, but it's not until they're on the Falcon and they get into the Death Star that the movie really picks up. And when it does, like it really doesn't slow down. Like it's really one action beat after another and it's incredibly entertaining. Yeah, and it just keeps going because yeah. on Yavin 4, the Death Star schematics are analyzed. The weakness is the reactor, exactly where Galen said it would be. Surprise, surprise. The rebel plan to launch a small attack on the Death Star begins. Han, thinking this is a suicide mission, leaves with his reward money. The Death Star hovers over Yavin. In 17 minutes, it will be within firing range. This isn't necessarily a problem I have with this movie, but it's a problem I have with a lot of movies. When you start the countdown clock and it doesn't matter, like 17 minutes is still like, I I don't know. It's like a weird amount of time. I don't like it. Uh, What, 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 bothers you about is that it's not a specific number, like a 10 or five. No, it's just like, it puts such a, I hate clock countdowns in movies. I really do. Because it, the timing of what the act, the timing of the action that's happening never really matches with like. Oh, it never does. No, it never matches with what's actually supposed to be happening. Especially, and it really, it, it always like aggravates me when they're like, you have four minutes to get this thing. I and mean, it takes like 10 minutes of like, not 10 minutes, but like the action trope. you have to go through. It's like, there's no way you could pull this off in four minutes. There's it's just a trope no way. that has plagued you know, action uh, stories since, you know, the Adam West Batman show where it's like a bomb's going to go off and they have 30 seconds to whatever. Well, that's and then- why I said it's not anything against this movie specifically. It's no, just they, some, yeah, yeah. a problem I have with a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To ensure the threat is mitigated, Vader joins the battle as well. The assault is a massacre for the rebels. One by one, they are shot down. The rebels get to the reactor and it is not a direct hit. A second pass led by Luke commences. Well, Luke takes over because he's really the only one left. (laughs) With 30 seconds until the Death Star destroys Yavin, he is surrounded by ties. All looks lost until the Millennium Falcon appears. (laughs) (laughs) Vader spirals out of 
I'm sorry. The Death Vader what is always is like ridiculous to me. <laughs> Vader spirals out of control but survives. Luke using the force fires on the reactor and the Death Star explodes. The rebels reward this achievement by holding an award ceremony for Luke and Han, but not Chewie. Oh music man, so swells. disrespectful. <laughs> the music swells. The end. So disrespectful. So disrespectful. All right. So as always, uh, in before we jump into the categories, we're gonna do the canon corner because of how much time we spent on everything else. I'm gonna keep it very very short. So let's just talk about the construction of the Death Star simply because I mentioned that we would this week. It was originally designed by the Geonosians during, uh, before the Clone Wars began. Uh, you see that in episode two when Pago the Lesser hands the plans over to uh, Count Dooku. Construction actually began over the planet of Geonosis during the Clone Wars. They were prepping. The Separatists thought that they could actually get this thing done in time. Sorry. So the timeline of this is actually as far back as because we the saw because in Attack of the Clones, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a little hologram of the, of Death, the Death Star. Star. So they had been planning this since so this has been over 20 years in the making. Yes. In the timeline of, of this. Okay. Yes. Um, Palpatine took over the de the galaxy and with it took over the Death Star project, at which point access to Geonosis was cut off completely, unless you had strict clearance. Uh, the entire planet, meanwhile, was eradicated. Every bug on Geonosis, dead. There's only one known survivor, Click Clack, and he has an egg with him. That That's all that's known right now. It, it was literally, genocide is, doesn't even begin to explain it. Uh, but to keep up the uh, daily tasks, uh, the Empire brought in Wookiees to handle the manual labor. Uh, Grand Moff Tarkin, ever heard of him? Uh, he was animated last time we saw him. He was. Last week. Last week. Uh, he was given command over the construction project. Tarkin, uh, Krennic was below him as like the head of the actual construction. Tarkin was in charge of the security around it. Those two quibbled quite a bit. Um, but he was also in charge of the entire outer, outer rim, which is how he got, he is the first Grand Moff in the entire galaxy because Palpatine uh, liked his ruthlessness and we don't have time to get into him, but him and Palpatine go back sometime too. The weapon uh, used kyber crystals as its power source, which is why in Rogue One, you see the Empire mining Jetta for its kyber crystals. Um, that was predicated on Galen's work. The construction took about 20 years because it's not easy to just build the Death Star. Contrary to... Uh, popular belief. What? Contrary to popular belief. I was going to say contrary to what episode six kind of shows. It was not easy to build the Death Star. It took a lot of resources throughout the galaxy. It literally destroyed plant... Like building this thing destroyed planets because the Empire stripped... Uh, planets for parts in order to build it. Uh, but obviously it was such a huge station that most of the people who worked on it had no idea where they were in the galaxy at any given moment. They literally had no idea because 
there are also no windows. <laughs> now, what so, is your what is your source for all this little information? This uh, Clone Wars, or is this books? Is this? It's a mix of everything. All right. I mean, I tr- I mean, obviously, I trust your judgment more than anyone on where this is coming from. And yeah, I didn't know if there was a specific source where I could find this information for myself, aside from Wikipedia, of course. There are a lot of books. Um, <laughs> okay, keep going. But it was so big that a lot of them had no idea where they were at any given point. So a lot of the people who were on the Death Star when Alderaan exploded had no idea that they had blown up Alderaan. Alderaan's explosion was a huge deal. Uh, obviously, all because not just because it, a planet was blown up, but because it was Alderaan. Alderaan was a core planet. For those who don't know, the galaxy in Star Wars is broken up into uh, three different sections, well, four four different sections. You have the core planets, the mid-rim, and the outer rim, and then you have the unknown regions. So for a core planet, which are like the richest and most vibrant because they're all closest to Coruscant, for one of those planets to be blown up is a big deal. Palpatine, when he heard about it, was furious because Tarkin did not tell him that he was going to do it. Um, The blowing up of Alderaan led to the opposite effect that Tarkin thought it would have. It led to massive defections from the Empire and it led to a lot of sympathy for the rebels. Um, Real quick, in blowing up Alderaan, does that mean that uh, Bail Organa was on that planet and that he's dead? Because I know that that character in the filming of this movie was not a person, but in hindsight of the story, because he became so important in the Clone Wars, that's a big loss because that's a big that's a big that be that's a big character. So in losing, I'm sure there are even more core characters from Clone Wars who may have been on Alderaan at that point. Uh, but not that he's we know pro- of. He's probably the biggest though. He was and, the biggest because uh, he was the central political figure on Alderaan. Right. He, that's why Tarkin targeted Alderaan because right. of his political leanings. Um. The Death Star destruction, though, was so monumental that it is actually how the years are broken down in the Star Wars galaxy. You have BBY, which is everything we talked about beforehand. That is before the Battle of Yavin. So, like, you know, the Death Star blows up in zero ABY, which is after the Battle of Yavin. So everything that happens afterward is one, two, three, you know, stuff like that. And just one more note, after the Death Star blew up, Palpatine, of course, was furious. You know, as you can imagine, they just built this thing and all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. The loans haven't even been paid off yet. (laughs) Now, where is Palpatine supposed to be during all of this? He's on Coruscant. I think I noted a couple weeks ago that Palpatine, though he liked having unlimited power, did not really partake in daily political life he didn't give a shit at that point because well, he's an old man now he's an old old man he was already kind of an old man but now he's an old old man yeah after becoming emperor his main objective was delving deeper into the force mm-hmm. so he was on coruscant during this entire endeavor and after this event vader went back to coruscant and got bitch slapped essentially by palpatine he was demoted and put under, uh, what's his face? 
General Cassio Tag, who was also in episode four. He is the other guy in the Imperial meeting who is not a big fan of the Death Star. Uh, and one quote was like, Vader mentioned that Tarkin blew up Alderaan and Palpatine was like, yeah, Tarkin is lucky that he didn't live to feel my wrath right now. Like you guys fucked up big, <laughs> very bigly. Yeah. <laughs> very bigly so that's all i got that's fine i think that's enough so then let's go into the awards tell me josh run down what the awards are for the people at home just a reminder we have most iconic moment clunkiest dialogue the john williams award best creature or droid design the standout character and the best use of the force uh would you like me to kick it off um or no 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 yeah yeah, yeah you kick it off so most iconic moment, uh, obviously there are a lot in this movie. This is I, like a movie with every scene is pretty, you know, quote unquote I was iconic. just gonna, gonna say, this was actually pretty tough because I, there's so much, like there's so much going on here that truly is iconic. The sequence I will go to though is the binary sunset simply because when I think of this movie, that's the first image that pops into my mind it sets the tone for everything that happens in this movie. Luke's entire character arc is that moment. So mm-hmm. that that's my pick. What that, about you? That, that was certainly uh, a runner up for me. Um, I kind of, I, I mean, it may actually not be the most central, like, like the part that the most memorable part, but I think iconic is at the, uh, is the end. I think it's Luke destroying the death star. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what it's it's this plan that you know is going to go well. It's this hopeful kind of optimistic space adventure, but it's this moment of culmination where it all kind of comes down to fruition of this moment. The music building, the blast firing, and then the giant explosion of the ship flying away. I mean, like it's a just a just that visual image alone of the Death Star. I think in like in TV snippets they'll use the second Death Star blowing up more with the ring, or yeah. is the, I don't know if they added the ring. And- no, they. That's another George Lucas edition. He changed the actual explosion in this movie. So the one that you're watching is not the original explosion. Right, right. But either way, that to me is just like, I think of that, the two blast, the two blasters going in and just seeing that that woman, it just, there's so many. I mean, like we've just, we've run down. It's just yeah, endlessly iconic moments. One, one that I'll mention simply because I think we kind of jumped over it a little. It's just like, uh, the sequence where Han is talking to the guy on the radio, you know, just like, fine, ha- how are you? you know, I love to me, that. that's like an iconic scene. I love that so sequence. much. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, you know, like, well, all iconic. Anyway. I mean, I think that's a good segue into the second award, clunkiest dialogue, because um, I'm taking this, kicking this one off. Yeah. Because this one was hard, though. Right. So this was difficult. Ultimately, what I went with, and it's only because it stands out to me every time, and it, I'll just I'll explain a little bit. But it's Leia's line early on to Tarkin. I should have expected you to be Governor Tarkin. I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. I think it's what stands out about that. And if you watch Carrie it's Fisher, her British accent. <laughs> yes. So the late, the wonderful late Carrie Fisher has an one of my favorite. Uh, it's a stand-up slash kind of uh, uh, autobiography or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's I don't know what it's called, um, where she basically did a thing for HBO years ago 
and where she does this thing actually hold they like on. the princess diaries or something hold on I'm, hold on i'm actually gonna get the name of it right now because i i've wishful drinking it's that called was it. so if it's it actually should be on hbo max because it's an hbo thing anyway but what carrie fisher does this brilliant like hour and a half kind of like breakdown of her career and who she is and how she had a lot of psychological problems so not to harp on her too much but basically one of the things she talks about is how she had been studying i guess abroad and i guess like so she had this like so would slip in and out of this english accent when she was acting and it's it very much so stays in this in this movie in that one scene but it's just a very like i think of the clunky dialogue like i should have expected you to holding up I expected to. I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognize your foul stench when I was brought on board. The fact that it's a British accent is icing on the cake because the accent disappears. But what the note I made was while watching this again is that almost all of the dialogue, and this is what I was alluding to earlier about this whole movie with the scenes, but almost all of the dialogue and all of the iconic lines in this movie tiptoe between being clunky and being like genuinely memorable. Again, that's what gave the. Um studio so much trepidation about making this movie they're reading yeah. the script they're watching the dailies they're like what is this fucking movie this is crazy um, so but the um, lines just another so, fun fact about yeah. that quote that you listed yeah carrie fisher later said yeah i felt bad about that line because peter cushing was a nice man who smelled <laughs> of cotton like <laughs> no he smelled of linen like fresh <laughs> linen so right you know, it's just funny stuff. Uh, for clunkiest dialogue, I felt like there's really only one choice where it's Luke Skywalker complaining, but I have to get the power converters from Chelsea Station. <laughs> the Chelsea Station quote. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's a mix of Luke being a whiny little whiny. bitch. <laughs> and just the, the, the line, you know, it's Harrison Ford had the famous quote while filming this movie where George kept saying like, no, you're, you're giving the wrong lines. And Harrison Ford said, George, you wrote this shit, but you don't have to say it, you know? <laughs> so That's that so one's good. pretty good. Uh, John Williams award. I just wanted to mention a runner up, which was the Obi-Wan uh, music that uh, I don't know what the technical terminology is, but it's the, dun -dun 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 -dun, you know, like behind him. Oh, like it's when like he the... sits back and when he sits back and thinks and like yes. was hearing about the force yes. for the first time. I, I wanted to mention that, but obviously again, I'm going to go with the binary sunset as the song of choice for this one. Um, I mean, we could turn this into a discussion piece. That's my pick as well. I want to give two shout outs. One is a bonus to the Cantina Band theme. That has been... I mean, that theme appears in whatever, parodies and whatever, and you hear it and you just know what it is. It is... I mean, I I don't know. You can't Who's not... ready die. for the next song? Play the same song. Play okay, that do, same do, do, song. <laughs> I also want to give a shout out to the throne room slash ending theme because that set a trend for yeah. music to build to the final credits. 
Um, or even the opening credits. I know, like, because everything is fresh and new in this movie. Like, everything correct. is on the board for this So we got to put ourselves in the shoes of 1977. Uh, you know, our our old Nikes or whatever people, kids, the kids are wearing Adidas or whatever is still Is Nike today. still a thing then? I don't even know. I don't even know. Um, no, no, kids are wearing Converse shoes in the 70s. What am I, stupid? All right, so. <laughs> Big <laughs> but, dumb idiot. Yeah, but the, but, but, the, but the binary sunset, I think, is something that has created a lasting impression arguably has transcended i don't want to use two big words here has arguably transcended like the score of star wars in general because the fact that they bring that theme back in the end of revenge of the sith because i remember watching revenge of the sith in theaters and i'm like so like um it's like a it was like a drug like i'm so uh, <laughs> it, so fascinated by it and then it gets to the ending and they show baby luke on tatooine and uncle owen and the obi-wan's passing off and they play that theme and it's just that theme is like it captures all the emotional resonance of what makes John Williams score for all these movies as memorable as they are. That oh, binary 100%. sunset score is like, I can't put it into words. It's, it's incredible. It It's arguably one of the best scores of the entire franchise, not just this film. So exactly. Uh, it, it, best yeah. creature design, go for it. This was a little tricky because. This I, one I was easy for me. Okay, so I'll I'll just say I mean, it's kind of a tie between the the Tuscan Raiders and the Cantina Bar Goers because like I those are the only real creatures that I think are. I'm gonna tell you you're wrong, and here's why I'm gonna say you're wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This is the first Star Wars movie, so everything is on the table. The most, the best creature or character design is Darth Vader. Are you kidding me? Like, uh, I also wouldn't call him a, a creature, but I guess he's technically part, a droid. He's more machine than man. He's than more he machine than man. I I mean, maybe I have a looser interpretation of this because I went just like best character design. <laughs> That's fine. Vader is an image that everyone around the world knows. He is like up there with Mickey Mouse and oh, every I, there's other... no doubt. Everyone knows that helmet, even if they don't know what Star Wars is. They see the helmet. I think people would recognize the image of Darth Vader more than they would almost, I mean, maybe C-3PO or R2-D2, but like the Vader helmet alone is... Well, R2-D2 is my runner-up, but um, Vader to me is just like iconic. Yeah, so, I went with those secondary characters. I just like the design. Tuscan Raiders are, you know, actually well, menacing. For best and... creature design, it would be hard to pick anyone outside of the cantina. It's the like... Can, yeah. Every single per every single creature in there is like so many puppets. Crazy! You have like a giant ant in there. You have like weird. It's hilarious. Some of the people in there. Uh, the standout character, um, obviously, run. There's Vader. Uh, Harrison Ford is Han Solo. Solo has never been like my favorite character, but I can't deny that Harrison Ford brought just like charm and gusto to this project like but for me the standout character is obi-wan for me just the fact that they got alec guinness who again was an academy award-winning actor big star but he brings such a like interesting spin on obi-wan he brings he brings a uh, an incredible presence to the movie that would have it would have felt lost without him he's not he's only in the first uh half of the movie or the you know he's he's not as he's prominent really... as the other characters, but, yeah. but no. his presence is, he's my runner up. His presence is incredibly. And I just think he does something with the character that not 
that a lot of people have emulated, obviously, not just Ewan McGregor. Like, I see Ian McKellen emulated a lot of what he did for Gandalf. Oh, Lord but, of the Rings, absolutely. But what he did was he brought this, like, sensibility of, like, I know a lot of the answers, but I'm not going to tell you a lot of the answers, you know? that. He, yeah, he's the perfect mentor. Yeah, so that's mine. What is your actual answer? Uh, um, to go off of what you were saying about... Um... Harrison Ford, um, my my pick is, is Han Solo. I know, you know, it's it's an easy pick. Uh, the reason I mention is that- I think it would have been better if Alden Ehrenreich was in it. Is, oh my God. If they just, <laughs> if some, some just some horrible internet troll just puts, shops Alden Aaron, oh my God, onto Harrison Ford's face. But what Harrison Ford brings to Star Wars and like, it's not, obviously I can, again, I'll rip, just not to sound like a broken record, but like, I can't say anything no one else has said about it, but it's like, Harrison Ford's take on like anything that he's doing is it's the only time that a character like you were saying about him saying the lines the way he says them anytime you know Harrison Ford speaks it's just it feels natural it feels genuine it feels like he's kind of just doing his own thing and it works in the Star Wars lore whereas like a lot of a, most of the cast you know, and it's nothing against them or it's nothing against the writing. I mean, we've talked about the, we can talk about the acting and the clunky dialogue or whatever, but it's like, it feels very Star Wars and kind of like a hokey way where Han is like this, like kind of like, he he doesn't really fit in with that kind of persona of Star Wars being campy or corny or hokey. And yet it's like, he fits in perfectly because he's such a contrast, you know? So like, he's, He's just, he always is the standout to me coming off the chronolo uh, chronological, um, you know, storytelling of this, coming off the heavy drama of the prequels, you know, and to, and to jump into this is like, he's got that fun, uh, light kind of like cowboy, uh, no. you know, nature. And so, you can't go wrong picking uh, Harrison Ford. It's, it's so. a safe, it's a safe pick, but it's the one that, uh, it's the one that stands out. To What's me. your pick for best use of the force? Um, so just to bring it back again, I mean, I re I mean, this was tough, but I mean, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go with the ending again with Luke destroying the Death Star. It's very similar to what I alluded to in Rogue One being like the force being more of going with the force being more of a spiritual or unseen presence rather than, you know, something that people move with objects and stuff. Um, the idea that Luke has this moment of pure blind faith, like I had mentioned with, um, uh, Rogue One, it's a similar notion of blind faith, is that he closes his eyes and he kind of just has, he hears only one's, you know, voice and he just takes the shot Ooh, and it's just, it's great Luke. because it, it captures what the force is and that's it, you know what I mean? There's nothing else to it, you don't need to put it there's nothing else you need to show, it's just kind of like this whole movie's been building towards blind his blind faith and like, hey, you know what, let me just trust my instincts, let me trust whatever's going on in the universe and anyway but uh, um, for me I I don't know. I have three answers. I have the literal one. Hit me with them. The all right. So one of my answers is the best use of the force for the screenplay is Alec Guinness's monologue because getting that monologue is pretty good. Yeah, it's really him good. telling us what the force is uh, and giving us the whole download on that. Download on that. Then I have the metaphor oracle use of the force which is the force awakening uh, not to like rip off the coming movie but yeah, yeah. you know 
for up until this point, the force had been dormant. The dark side had won. And now it is woken up and put Luke on his path. But the actual answer I will go with is Ben vanishing after he is struck down by Darth Vader. Chronologically watching this movie, it is the first time you see a Jedi disappear after they die, which is why Vader is so like, what is going on? Like, where where did this guy go? Yeah, how he do you... moves the cloth with the, he yeah. kicks how, the cloth. How, how, how do you do that? How do you do that? <laughs> so it's just uh, him achieving immortality is by far the strongest use of the force we have seen thus far in the series. Mm-hmm. And that is my choice. No, it's good. I mean, that's, yeah, you don't see that. We haven't seen that yet, you know, like you said, chronologically, so it's good. So, are you ready to get into final discussion? Yeah, of course. I guess I can start. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this without blowing too much smoke up George Lucas's asshole. Um, <laughs> but this movie, it is hard to deny that it changed cinema forever. Sure. You know, it may not be my favorite Star Wars movie of all of them, but in terms of cinema, it changed everything. Like I said, before this movie came out, 1976, Taxi Driver, Network, Rocky, All the President's Men, like dark, dour, nitty gritty, looking at systems and questioning them, this movie comes out and the 80s starts three years early. Like, it, this Everything changed. changed. It all changed, man. Now I mean, changed everything. It just like, it exploded. I, I don't... Yeah. I'm trying to think you of how to work You really this. can't put it... No. There's another podcast out there, The Cinephiles, and one of the hosts yes. has a great quote that he says, there are certain movies that are so good that they destroyed Hollywood. And this is one of those movies. Yeah. This movie is the white whale that studios have been chasing ever since. And it has never, ever worked. It's never, arguably never been replicated. Yeah. Like you have, they've never, the closest they've come to replicating this kind of success in movies post, you know, after Star Wars, I would say is, I mean, in our, I mean, in a generation that's palpable for something that's palpable for our generation would be something closer to like the Avengers. But even then it's like, it's, that's different because it's coming off of, I don't know. It comes off of not just, you know, a, a few years. I'm talking about the first Avengers because of what, what that did, but because it came off of a couple films and a few years of build up to it, but also that that's comic book mythology. So they already had their audiences locked in whether the movies were going to be good or bad. Well, that's Star- a whole other thing that right. you're bringing up. Marvel had a template. They had comic books. This is right. something wholly original. Exa- and that's why it's not really a good example, but it's the only thing I can think of where like it was a big enough thing that people were involved. But even then it's a totally, and you can't compare it to anything, you know? That's what I'm saying. This is the white whale that Hollywood has been chasing forever. And on top of that, this is a cinematic achievement that has embedded itself so deep into the zeitgeist of just daily cultural life it's changed pop culture yeah yeah yeah. 
I, I, I'm a big Star Wars lover. So, but I feel like no matter where you go, you are going to hear at least one Star Wars reference every day. Or no matter who you are, where you go, like there will be at least one Star Wars reference in your life a day in this country, at least. I mean, it's really just it's 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 inescapable. It's unavoidable. It binds us. It kind of uh, whatever the, whatever the <laughs> it quote penetrates is. us. It binds the galaxy together. Oh, it's, it's, and in a way, this is to me there is an upper echelon of films that this breaches. Where again, this is not my favorite Star Wars movie, but you know, I'm putting this on par with like um, Wizard of Oz. Or oh um, my, it'll it'll only continue to become more iconic as it goes on. Well, uh, the tier is for movies that not only are classics, but have proved that they can like stay relevant throughout the tests of time, and that I feel like every American watches both those movies at least once in their life. There are other movies that go into that category, but that's the category that they're put in. Like the Godfathers in that category. Like the AFI top 100 or like, you know, a thousand movies you must see before you die. Like, it's always like these are, it's one of those movies that it's like, it's so much more than that because it's it's like- different than that. Exactly. Because it's one of those movies that you actually watch. It's not like the AFI list where number one is Citizen Kane. I'm telling you the average person is not watching Citizen Kane, but they have watched Star Wars. Of course. There's something about it because, and what I was saying about the force about it being, it it, it translates a universal message like with what it tries to do with religion. It's more than that because of what it tries to do with sci-fi and adventure and all the genres it blends in. It's one of those things that's kind of like, and the reason I compared it to, like I use Avengers to compare it to is because it's the only thing that comes close to this sense of like what it is that's palpable for for any audience, like for any moviegoer, young or old or whatever, like whoever, no matter who you are, like Star Wars is, it's out there for like, it's it's something that is, ava- it, it makes something available for everyone, no matter what. And it's kind of like, it's very hard to hit all those targets because everyone is different and everyone has different taste and in every i don't know it's just you brought up the force though yeah and it's just funny to note that like in the united states census they ask a question about religion and each time that they've done that the number the percentage has grown and people are writing down the force in that bubble, you know. That's so funny. I think the last census, because the two thousand, the twenty twenty one still isn't in yet, but the last one I believe had like five to to ten percent of the country saying that they believe in the force. Like, <laughs> you can't like four to five, like five to ten percent of the country believes that. Like what? Like well, you it's built it, something you... crazy and right. For Disney to have purchased this entire empire for four billion dollars is a mm-hmm. fucking steal. Like, I mean, it's really it just it puts it into perspective in ways that like you can't really do with anything else. Like, really, what we're doing is we're capping up like our whole show because this is what Star Wars is in general. But it really does start with this movie. Yeah, um, and I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't actually talk about the movie because right now we're just talking about. About, about the impact it's the had. impact of the movie so let's talk about our final thoughts on the actual movie i mean 
yeah, you could start. Well, no, a point I wanted to make, and it's kind of just segueing to what you're saying about the thoughts yeah. about the actual movie, is I think about nostalgia and growing up with certain movies. And there are plenty of people I've known growing up who never watched Star Wars, and you try and introduce it to them as like adults or young adults. or And it's kind of like, it's very strange because it does fall into, don't get me wrong, I've met people who have watched Star Wars for the first time as adults and they fall in love with it. You know what I mean? Like, um, uh, I just showed my mother uh, all the Star Wars movies, you know, two years ago or whatever. So it's kind of like, it's cool to see people get into it for the first time as adults. But I grew up watching all these um, VHS tapes, either from the library or like my parents used to tape a lot of movies on TV uh, and they would just put in cassette tapes. And so it's funny because in growing up, we had all these taped movies in my dad's office. And so just to make it like personal for a sec is that it's like, I remember watching these old VHS tapes and like fast forwarding through the commercials and you're watching movies. And one of those movies was Star Wars. So it's funny, there's like a very nostalgic visual, like, like caked uh, memory of, of my upbringing in, in these movies for that reason. Like I grew up with it. And so like, I've never had a period in my life where I wasn't watching star wars you know what i mean yeah, it's always exactly. been with me and so it's always been personal the and force the fact will that, be with you always always you know what i mean and the fact that we're just grown-ass adults and still i still it still hits me the way it does i mean of course watching all the movies i've seen yeah. i can see where it's hokey and campy and silly and whatever but that's exactly why i love it yeah. i think that it captures that wonky 70s kind of well that's what's interesting about yeah. this movie too and you know kind of you know you see where it has gone and the production value has gotten a lot higher class as the years sure. have gone on but there's something charming about just the quaint and nitty-gritty of this movie you know like the cantina is the best example of that you go in there and there are masks used from like movies that have come out years ago that they just found a mask and they're like all right we need anything we can get like <laughs> the thrift store vibe of this entire movie oh man it's it feels so low budget but like in the best way you know yeah and some of the like crazy stuff that george had to go through to get this movie i didn't mention it before but like peter cushing his character is supposed to be wearing boots but on set he refused so he wore slippers the entire time so lucas could only shoot him from the knee up I you know it. it's like there's crazy little things like that. There's so much behind this movie and even in the movie that just builds mythology. I, again, I, it, it's probably not my favorite Star Wars movie. Sure. Because I feel like there are certain things, it's not that they don't land, it's just like certain things have been expunged upon in later movies that I find more interesting. And the character development in this movie is pretty lacking. Mm -hmm. And Luke Skywalker is very, very irritating for years. I, I, I mean, I could save this for The Last Jedi, but it wasn't until The Last Jedi that I truly put Luke in my like top five characters of Star Wars. You know, up until yeah. that point, he was kind of lower tier for me too. Well, like, I mean, that, yeah, to quote you, a whiny little bitch, I mean, that's how he comes off a lot of time. But that's I get it. The main ca central character is supposed to be, you know, this very flawed kind of uh, confused character in, in a lot of in a lot of stories. Um, well, it's but, a hero's journey. He's going through his journey. This um, is the beginning. But what uh, what uh, a final note for me I really wanted to bring up that you had mentioned just before is that you're talking about these 
decisions that they had to make and how thrift store, you know, uh, vibey it is and all these decisions they make. And I got to say that as far as our thoughts on the actual movie, I got to say in terms of the bold risks that they took in making this movie, allowing George to be just like, like you said, he was what, 20, 26 years old. And the fact that they banked on this kid basically to make all these kind of guerrilla style filmmaking decisions like you said like it's basically like a, it's one of the most successful indie movies of all time i mean I, I think the actual filmmaking of it is is such a huge crux of of its success as well because of like we like i was alluding to earlier like how on the brink of failing the movie feels like it is going to fall apart in in, in every scene and because of what they were able to pull off with these like I can only imagine just like being on set and seeing them make the decisions they had to make, like, and how ridiculous it must have seemed while they were shooting it. I don't mean to make this about Coppola, but it's hard to take away Coppola from Lucas's story. They're so integrated, and yeah. I think that this is the moment in history where they switch because at this very moment, Lucas was tapped to direct Apocalypse Now, but ended up doing Star Wars instead. Both Lucas and Coppola had horrible, like terrible, like gut-wrenching, ulcer-inducing times making those respective movies. But Lucas persevered over the making of Star Wars, made one of the most successful movies of all time, opened his own movie studio in San Francisco, which was always Coppola's dream. Right. And it was the one of the biggest studios ever. Where Coppola made Apocalypse Now, and I think it destroyed him, and he never recovered from it. So it, right. I just see like the dichotomy of those two. At this, at this moment, it kind of like flips. But no, I mean it's true, and I mean it's it's a it's a it's a it's an imprint on, on, you know, on cinema at this exact moment, whatever, yeah, when, 1977. When Coppola came back from uh, making Apocalypse Now, Lucas approached him and said, when I, when I left you, I was about the learner. Now I am the master. <laughs> so I think this is a good place to end. I think it's a great place to end. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have a pick of the week, Josh? Um, I do. Forgive me if, uh, well, Oh, I mentioned it before, but I actually have a runner-up pick of the week. I just can't help myself because we've mentioned it a couple times. Oh, because yeah. it's not it's not a real movie. I think it's a, well, an episode I was going to say, uh, Family Guy's Blue Harvest. Technically, it's an own. It's an hour long if you get like the whatever it's a DVD. It's less you can than watch that. It's like forty minutes with because of commercials. I mean, I wanted you know, to give it a quick. Out, I wanted to give it a quick shout out because it's what I said earlier. I don't know if, uh, I don't know how I said it, but it's like it it's 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 it, it is almost i mean it taunts and make and parodies exactly what is laughable about star wars but it, they do it in a respectful way you can do it like it is literally made for the diehard fans who know it in and out so well that they can mock it in a loving way and i think it's special because like obviously seven fallen is a is a star wars fan you know what i mean and that just that first bit that first parody yeah. shows it from shot to shot so and talk about thrift movie making you know peter can't even walk away from a couch in the garbage you know i love that what's so more thrifting much. than that it's incredible it's very silly and if and anyone who's not a fan of family guy may not get a 
a dig out of it, so it's not really. I can't in full faith give it my full pick of the week. But if you're a Family Guy fan and a diehard Star Wars What's fan, it's, actual pick of the week. My actual pick is going to be Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings: Fellowship of the Ring. Good one. Good one. I don't think I made it a shout out. It's actually become. I think I made it a shout out, but it doesn't. Probably matter. it doesn't matter. But either way, it's what I use it as a starting point for a franchise, despite the Hobbit movies and despite them being based off of books first. Um, what that first movie did, it kicked off a kind of a, 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 a not just it's a trilogy, but an iconic um, you know set of movies that people that are not only have they not aged, but they're they're iconic. Now, don't get me wrong, they're twenty years old, which is crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. The fellowship is true. Is twenty years old as of this year. Um, but I just, I mean, that's one of those movies that it's just like obviously we got to give it the test of time I, to to com- even compare to Star Wars. And I'm not really comparing it to Star Wars. I'm just saying it. I think it's a rightful pick for me in terms of what it did for how it started. Well, Everything Lord of, of the Rings was used. That's one of the things Lucas incorporated into Star Wars. You know, yeah. Gandalf and uh, Obi Wan or the same thing neither right. one of them makes it out of those movies right right and i think that there's something they're both reborn too i think what's in terms of fellowship not to talk about not to compare to star wars but in terms of like what it does as a story and the hero's journey it does a very it follows a very similar form a, a very simu- similar, similar formula, formula similar similar um but like you said star wars itself took from lord of the rings and so it's a a, it's a it's a whole cycle um but it's an incredible movie and it's i mean i just i love everything about it and everything it does for its own hero's journey um i can't talk enough about it so i'm not going to talk about it at all all right so for my pick of the week i'm going to go (laughs) with 1980s flash gordon good good man yeah um good man starring sam j jones and max von Sydow as ming the merciless holy smokes what a role not a pc movie probably would be canceled in today's society um but the reason i am bringing it up is for that reason i think everyone should watch that movie because it can show you how bad things could have gone with star wars how quickly things could have devolved Plus, I'm not here to endorse drug use, but if you happen to stumble across a joint and throw that movie on, it's it. it I heard for through a grapevine, it's it, it could be a fun time for countries where it's available for you know legally, of course, you know. Yeah, I hear I hear it's a fun time to watch that stoned. So yeah, uh, no, it's it's a it's a really it's a lot really. <laughs> That's a, it's really extra, or as we say on our show, it's a lot of tuna fish. But I think that what you bring up a great point in saying that it's to show what could have been, because like I kept saying, like Star Wars teeters on this line where you're like, yo, this could have really fallen apart, and Flash Gordon is, and it's it fell it fell apart in the best way. Flash Gordon it falls apart in a way that like the room does, like it is unbelievable. The best thing it has going for it is the Queen song, Flash so good uh, so good i'm not gonna sing anymore <laughs> i don't want to pay royalty fees um God. so i guess that concludes this episode josh tell the good people where can they find you on the interwebs uh you can find me at letterboxd under beesh uh that's exactly how it sounds b-e-e-s-h beesh so uh and steven you tell can find people. me on Letterbox and Instagram at Mr. Filmart, and you can find the podcast on Instagram at Who's Filmography. Yeah. Next week we get into a little movie called The Empire Strikes Back. I don't know. I'm 
I heard good things though. Is, I, is I it, think it's gonna be good. Is that what we're covering? I thought I thought we were doing the holiday special or something like that. <laughs> oh man, that holiday special. Uh, we'll talk about it sometime. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll do it for Christmas this next this coming year. We'll see. Oh god, we will see. Anyway, we will see you next time. And remember, may the force, may the be, force with be with you. Oh god. Always. <laughs> Always.